thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight, we're going to be studying chapter 21 of the book of Numbers, a rather difficult or challenging uh, chapter. And we're going to look at five, actually six points we're going to go through. One is maps. Uh, it'll be good for us to reorient ourselves and understand where they are presently, that is where Israel is in their journey. Then we'll look at the encounter with the Canaanites, which is verses 1 through 3. Um, a difficult topic that we're going to spend some time on. Then after that, we'll look, we'll, 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 we'll look at the bronze snake, verses 4 through 9. Then the route through Transjordan, verses 10 through 20. And while I will not necessarily spend a lot of details on this route, it, it will be important to highlight certain points, particularly those points where uh, we do have challenges and difficulties fully understanding the text. And then we'll look at two victories, one over Sihon, which is from verses 21 through 32, and the other over Og from verses 33 through 35. As I said, it is, a, um, it is a rather challenging chapter. So in order to better understand what is going on, we're going to look at, a, at three maps, which I'm going to uh, distribute now. So as you can see in these, these maps, they're sort of important for us to um, locate where things are. You can see that um, essentially they started in Egypt, and they're going to move northeast, and there you see Edom, and Moab, Ammon, and Aram. These are the main kingdoms, if you will, back then. And then further east, you have Assyria and Babylonia, which at this point don't play much of a role in, what, in the events that takes place now. In the third map, you have a more of a focused view with more details than what you have in the first one, because you see the nations that God told them that they will dispossess. The Perizzites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, then the Edomites and the Moabites, and as well the Girgashites Ger and the Hevites. And these are the seven nations of Canaan, and today the focus is going to be mostly on the Ammonites. So to understand what is at stake here, 
uh, we're going to look at the second map, which is the one that gives us the circuit that they followed in order to access the, um, the, the promised land. Now, the first thing you're going to notice is the black dotted route on the top of the map. This would have been the direct route if you were to go from Goshen, where they were. So you can see on the left-hand side, you have this notation, Land of Goshen. And you have the... Um, um, the, land, the direction that is given from the land of Goshen all the way up to the, um, um, the, the promised land. So this would have been the route to take, the most direct route from Goshen all the way up to the promised land. Instead they followed the red, the red circuit. That's the journey that they followed. You can see how um, circuitous this whole thing is. It's not direct, right? So they went from the land of Goshen to Migdol, and there they crossed. They crossed over. That's where the crossing took place. And they continued south. And you can see where the incident of the Mara incident happened when Moses had to throw a trunk in, a, in, the, uh, in the well, right, to turn it from bitter to, to sweet. And they reached Mount Sinai, where the commandments were given and where they were told to build the, the ark. And at that juncture is the end of Exodus. Right? Then they started moving back up north and... You can see that once they, they went to the wilderness of Paran, where we had uh, the big um, uh, um, rebellion take place, they tried to get into the Holy Land, got routed, so they had to go back in. And they traveled all the way back to uh, Elath, close to the Gulf of Aqaba, so that they can get water. And now they're going to go back up on the east side. So they're going to go through the Transjordan. So you see the first attempt was actually to go, um, to go through um, west of the uh, Seir Mountains, and now they're going to try and get in from the east, eastern side through what would be today modern Jordan. Modern Jordan, I'm sorry. You're with me so far? Okay. This territory is, if you look back on the map number three, essentially the... the that of the Ammonites. That's where they're going to attempt to enter. All right? And they obviously uh, went around the territory of the Edomites because they didn't fight them. If you remember, when they met with Edom, told him, let us pass through. We'll just take the royal road. We'll not touch anything. And Edom said, no, you're not. There was no fighting. Right? So they circumvented the territory of the Edomites. They also circumvented the territory of the Moabites because God told them, you'll not fight the Moabites. Right? So the logical next point of entry would be the Ammonites. Okay? Now, remember from the map, the third map, all of them are Canaanites. So they all fall under Canaan. Remember, who is Canaan now? The third child of Noah. 
can't just think in terms of nationality or races. You have to think in terms of family. All of these people are related, right? It's a big family feud. This is not about, oh, French versus German. This is family, family feud. Yeah? And what is about the Canaanites? What is, what is it that all the Canaanites are under? No curse, right? That is very important in understanding the first two verses. If we miss the covenantal curse, if we do not remember to go all the way back to Noah, the first two verses will seem very strange to our ears. So let's read those two verses. The first two verses of the book of the chap- chapter 21. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who dwelt in the Negev, or the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed give this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Now, that's the first interaction between Israel and the Canaanites. And we need first to understand what is at play here, what is taking place. So, now, first I need to tell you that this way of Atharim, if you look at the maps, you're not going to find it because it's unknown. This is where um, our knowledge in Scripture and our knowledge of archaeology do not map. In fact, I have a book at home written by two uh, Jewish archaeologists who, basing themselves on archaeology alone, determined that the the entire account of Israel leaving Egypt, going through Exodus and Numbers, and up to the Promised Land is essentially a myth. It never really happened. And it was actually put together by a scholar, a priest, um, under King Hezekiah, to sort of create a basis for their people. And there is very serious scholarship behind all of this to try to explain that. Now, you have to understand that their position, they didn't get to this position um, whimsically. It wasn't, they, weren't, they, they did not reach that position simply because they felt like it. They were driven there but because we have some disconnect between the account in Scripture and the archaeological data. So, for instance, according to archaeology, based on what we know of the whole Ammonite region, it didn't look that when they were going through it that this region was settled at all. It looked like there was no cities. We cannot find archaeological ruins of cities dating back to that period. So, there are some challenges in fully understanding uh, the constructs of Scripture. 
it is something to always bear in mind, particularly for this era, because a lot of that knowledge back then was not codified the way we codify knowledge today. So you didn't have signs that said, you know, 50 miles to the city and 30 miles. Geography was not the way we know it today. So what do they mean, for instance, when they said, again in this verse, by the way of Atharim, there is, we don't have any extra biblical account that speak of the way of Atharim. So, for instance, when you read the accounts of, the commercial accounts from Mari or other sources, when you see the correspondence between, say, the Phoenicians and the Egyptian, remember, these are, the Transjordan was a royal road that was followed both ways, uh, you would expect them to mention that name. So many of the cities we've seen so far in Scripture have been mentioned by extra-biblical sources as well. So you'd see, okay, other people mention the same place, therefore there is a higher probability that, yes, this, is, this city was in existence. The counter-argument to all of this, though, is that if indeed this was redacted by um, a late writer, so we're talking 700 B.C., so there are at least three to 500 years removed from these events, why would someone come up with a fanciful name that nobody, no, none of their contemporaries would know about? Their contemporaries would have the same issues that we do. And I would, would raise, well, where is that way of the Atharim? How did you come up with it? There ought to be something. Right? It's not fanciful. They were not trying to write science fiction if they were writing it. Why, would, why come up with names? That were, why introduce difficulty in your text when you want to convince people of something? So, therefore, that other explanation faces significant issues on its own. If, indeed, it was redacted by three guys, why would they inject the text with difficulties? Why would you do that? Let me make my text incomprehensible by naming some fanciful cities. It's not the normal way of writing. Hence, even if you were to say that these were redacted by three guys, the difficulty remains. You haven't solved anything. You just shifted it. And now you're wondering, why did those guys write it this way? That sometimes they will actually mention names which are indeed verifiable, and other times they don't. Why would they do that? Particularly when you're talking about a culture that is not known for writing fiction. Fiction writing is not part of that culture. Now, taking events which have happened or may have happened and glorifying them, adding to them, yes. Embellishing things, absolutely. But coming up with a whole fanciful world and calling it the word of, of the... I mean, how would you do that? What, what, what would prompt you to do that? Therefore, this is why I don't subscribe to these types of explanations because they do not provide a satisfying answer to those difficulties. They simply shift the difficulties and make it even more complicated because we now have to figure out who wrote these things and why did they write them and what and it's really now we are into what I call theological fiction. Hence I tend to refrain from all of this 
and stick to the basic principle that um, not everything that is mentioned could be carried over by archaeology. The, the, the sort of the principle that archaeology is the benchmark by which we test the historical authenticity of Scripture is itself problematic. Is itself problematic. So therefore, um, we, we have to exercise caution and um, simply admit that this is a, a bit of information that today contradicts our archaeological knowledge, but that does not mean that it is necessarily wrong. Okay, that step is not an obvious one to make. Hmm? All right. Now, verse 1, the Canaanite... So when the Canaanite, as soon as you hear Canaanite, right, your ears should perk up. We're not talking about some, oh, some other nation. Canaanite, Canaan, right? Go all the way back to Noah, to the curse that was put on the Canaanite, right? When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who dwelt in the Negev, or who ruled over the, the, the Negev, it's not clear whether he dwelt there or ruled over it and lived somewhere else. That is not clear. And the other difficulty, obviously, it is the king of Arad. Again, the name is not mentioned. Now, we know that no mention of names is not necessarily a sign of fanciful writing. Pharaoh's name is never mentioned. Yeah? Why are these names not mentioned? Because, as we said, the names of those who are wicked or do wicked things are blotted out. They are not remembered. So, for instance, the rabbis um, eulogized the third temple, the temple built by Herod. They only spoke of it in glowing terms. Never once do they mention Herod. He does not exist in their writings. But we know he does exist. Okay? So the fact that a name is not mentioned does not necessarily imply non-existence. However, from our standpoint, it presents a difficulty because we cannot pinpoint who that king was. Therefore, it makes it more difficult to um, situate the events in their historical context. Be it as it may, they heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim. He fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So a surprise attack was mounted. And he routed them and took some captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed give this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. Now, back then, soldiers were not paid. There were no wages for soldiers. Soldiers were paid by what they could actually grab. So for them to make such a vow, it is indeed a sacrificial vow. They're saying, whatever we take from their cities becomes holy to the Lord. It's going to go all to the tent. We get nothing out of it. So it's a completely sacrificial act on their part. And utterly destroy means utterly destroy. You take nothing for yourself. You keep nothing. It's a ban. Okay. And the Lord hearkened to, their, to the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites 
and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of the place was called Horma. Horma means forbidden. All right, be it as it may, so there's a couple of things that are really important to us. First of all, when we read this, you notice that there is a level of, um, there is a warfare going on. God engages in warfare. Okay? So as Catholics, the notion that every war is evil is simply not in accord with Catholic theology. Not every war is evil. Do you understand that? You can't be, you can't allow yourself to be infiltrated by this sort of uh, naive pacifism that says every war is evil. That's not the case. As you can see here, God hearkened to their prayer and he gave these people into their hands. That's going to happen not once, many times. Many times. In fact, there are cases, and you're going to see, where God commands them to go in battle. He commands the war. If you think that every war is evil, you're going to have a hard time reconciling that belief with who God is. God doesn't work this way. I'll give you one example of a war that, is, that can in no way be considered as evil. Is when you're called to defend your country against an attacker. Somebody's coming in to attack you. It is your duty to defend your country. That war can never be conceived as an evil. Yeah? However, and the reason why this is important, the reason why this is important, the reason why it's actually very dangerous to think that war is evil is because if you do that, you'll never engage in war. You will never engage in war. And when you don't engage in war, right? You've already surrendered to the devil. Because what is this life all about? It's a combat. You are in combat. Now, the, the weapons you use are different, but they're no less powerful. Yeah? No less powerful. You are in combat. Now, here's the really interesting thing for us. This is where we look at what is going on and we understand what God has in mind when He does these things. They told God, if you hearken to our prayers, we will offer you everything. And God does, and they are victorious. What, what is that? That's a recipe for a successful prayer, isn't it? What is it required for a successful prayer, therefore? Okay, what kind of sacrifice? No, 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 no. Not a human sacrifice. Yeah, but what are you giving? You're giving something to whom? Your wealth, okay. Your will, yeah, but it's not your... You're going after a prayer, right? What did they do to make their prayer successful? What did they say they're going to do? Offering to whom? No, no, no. To the temple, to the tent. It's a liturgical offering. You get it? So you put a buck in, uh, in the, in the um, basket, yeah? you're going to get a buck back. 
And you're going to wonder, why is God not answering my prayer? There you go. You notice how it is the connection, the sacrifice offered in the liturgy that makes prayer effective. It is the power of the Mass. Obviously, it's also of significance that they destroyed, when they destroyed these people utterly, God hearkened to their prayer. Later, they will destroy one whom they think is evil utterly, our Lord Jesus Christ, and God will hearken to their prayer, giving them the conversion of heart. In the book of Acts, we read that many priests of the temple embraced the new faith. Many converted. Because the one who was made like unto sin was destroyed utterly. Yeah? Yeah? Hmm. You have family members who do not believe. You have brothers and sisters outside the faith. What do you think you must do to bring them back? Uh That's the easy part. What is the part that moves mountain? It's your sacrifice. If you're not willing to die for them, you're not taking on the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us. Right? Amen, amen, I say to you, no greater love there is than one who lays his own life. That is the lesson that we receive from this. When you make a complete offering to God, a self-donation, God hearkens to your prayers. So you see what's stopping us? Our own selfish love. Our own will of self-preservation. And our fear of God. We fear Him. We don't trust Him enough. It brings us obviously back to Abraham. And why is it said that of Abraham that this was counted for him? That what he did was counted for him as faith. Why? Because he believed... He believed in the goodness of the Lord. That the Lord, that even though he will sacrifice Isaac, he was completely convinced he's going to sacrifice his son, but he trusted that God will bring him back. That the donation of his own son will not result in death, but in life. And it is the power of your prayer is correlated to your belief that if you were to give yourself to the Lord, He will give you life back. But when, if you cringe, and if you want to sort of take a blanket and fold it on yourselves, being afraid that if you were to do that, you're destroyed, then there is the limit of your faith in God. And I'll say to you, that if you can see that limit, you're blessed. If you can see that limit, if you acknowledge that limit, If you recognize it, okay, Lord, that's all I can do. I'm sorry, I just can't do more than that. Well, guess what? You're a really good company. The company of the apostles. 
what did they tell to Jesus? What did they tell our Lord? This beautiful prayer that came from an honest heart. Lord, we believe. Strengthen our unbelief. They were honest. The problem happens when we think we're good. We're good. We believe. You know, we go to church. We do this and then the other. We have our little checklist, right? We believe. We're good. We're good. That's it. We're good. We're ready to be canonized. Anytime you want. Pope Benedict, I'm ready. Right? Lord, we believe. Strengthen our unbelief. It is in the giving of your own life that you are fruitful. And that, again, does not mean that you're going to be shot or killed violently. It is more often for most of us, it's more of the sort of the daily martyrdom that happens every day when you have these anxieties and these frustrations and these limitations of what you can and cannot do. And the patient endurance of all these gifts that God gives you is a way of dying to yourself. When, if, if you can get to the point in this life when something is not going your way, and I really mean it's not going your way. I don't mean it just once in a day. I mean it 15 times in a row. And you try to fix this, and in trying to fix this, that other thing breaks. You try to fix that other thing, and this third thing breaks, and now you're interrupted 14 times in trying to fix this other thing, and this, you know, 20 things. If you can go through all of this and praise God for it, you're dying to yourself. That's what He wants. Not expecting you to climb mountains and throw yourself or try to go and convert all of No, no. If you can just do that. If you can just do that. Because, you know why? Because in doing that, you're, you're, what, what are you saying? Your will be done, aren't you? Is there a greater prayer than that? And you're not saying it with words. You're saying it with action. You know how powerful this is with God the Father? Actions speak louder. Oh, way louder. Actions speak... You know how powerful this is with God the Father when He sees you actually doing His will? You know how pleased He is? This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. Then He says that about you. And when He says that about you, would there be something you would, you'd ask Him He would not give you? Let's continue. Verse 4, from Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. As I said, now the skirting land of Edom and the people became impatient on the way. You see, this is another reason why I do not honestly believe that it is somebody who sat down and wrote the book. Because whoever wrote this book would have had to have a, I'm talking about fanciful writing, would have had to have a real profound and deep understanding of psychology and the uh, Divine pedagogy, the way God deals with us. Definitely the book is inspired. I mean, absolutely, it's, it's a dogma that Scripture is inspired. But I'm saying if you follow through, you see that it is indeed inspired because of the realism of the book. Somebody, let's say myself, I'm writing this book, and they won, they prevailed over Canaan. What would I write next? What do you usually do after a, a victory? Celebration, it's a party. You get maybe, you know, Joe falling in love with Susie or the, you know, Jewish equivalent, you know, whatever the case may be. And maybe there's a little bit of romance and something, right? This is how we would write, right? 
scripture. They went, by the way, you read them, and they became impatient. I mean, it's dissonant. We don't write this way. So wait a minute, where's the victory celebration here? There isn't any. They became impatient. So what's... They just made an offering. They just said to the Lord, if you do this, we'll do that. God did this. What's the result? Impatience. Hmm? What does that teach us? Yes, well, it never satisfied. Yeah, but I think it teaches something perhaps a little bit more pragmatic. Watch out for the boomerang. So you've done something. You've climbed this spiritual mountain. You've conquered your anxiety. Watch for the boomerang. Because usually what happens, two days later, we're, fl- we're falling flat on our faces again. And worse than what we were before. We didn't watch for that boomerang. What am I talking about? I'm talking about vanity. I'm talking about pride. I'm talking about all the vices that piggyback over this victory and start whispering in our ears. Yeah? So if... Here's here's an indication of um, your progress in the spiritual life. If you did something that is spiritually significant, and you're hearing this voice telling you, well, you're doing pretty good. See? You're living a holy life. You should be satisfied. You should be happy. If you do not reject that voice the way you would reject a suggestion to kill your mother. If you do not reject that voice with the same loathing as when you hear a voice suggesting to kill your own mother, then you have about 12 to 15 feet of vanity that you are waddling through, that you are bathing in. Your pool of vanity is very rich indeed. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? It is one of the hardest things to conquer. This spiritual vanity in thinking that we are good is one of the hardest things to conquer. And you have to pray to God to give you the grace to see it for what it is. A mere temptation. A mere temptation because none of us is good. In other words, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes into your soul and moves you to goodness. When you begin gloating about yourself, or you listen to the voice of the demon whispering in your ears to gloat about yourself, you're now appropriating the Holy Spirit for yourself. You're saying, it is I who's doing these things. So not only is it effectively a sin against God, right? it's a form of idolatry also because you're worshipping yourself. It's, it's something, it's a form of sin that's very subtle, but very hateful to God. And so, guess what God does then? Because He loves you. He whacks you real hard on the head. How does He do that? He allows you to fall back into sin. Because once you've done that, the whole illusion evaporates on the spot. 
you realize, oh no, I'm not ready to be canonized. Call the Pope, tell him to hold off. Right? I'm, I'm not ready. No, sorry. Right? I'm not ready at all. Right? Okay. That's the boomerang. Right? It's a divine pedagogy because God knows that our the fallen nature has so many uh, disorders in it. Vice leads us to disorder, right? And it's stubborn. It's really hard to conquer. And he's patient with us, and he's loving, and he's kind. He sees us fighting what we would consider to be the vices of the senses. Lust, gluttony, right? No, I'm talking about the, the vices related to your senses, right? Lust, gluttony in all its shape, um, um, laziness, right? Sloth, right? No, envy is more of the mind, right? Yeah, it's the mode of the eye or the will, right? All these things. He, he sees us fighting those. And so he helps us fighting those, although there's the other ones behind them. Once we start conquering those vices of the senses, guess what reels its ugly head? The vices of the soul. And vanity is one of them. And how do you recognize vanity? When you defend yourself when somebody accuses you of a wrongdoing you didn't do. As soon as you start defending yourself, you're vain. I'm not talking in cases where you must defend yourself, otherwise scandal might occur. If somebody comes and says you've embezzled the church and stolen $500,000, yes, you have to defend yourself. You have to clear your name and that of the church, because then scandal might occur. But I'm talking about very petty things. You ate the last piece. There were four pieces of baklava. You ate the last one. Let's assume you never touched the thing, right? What is your immediate reaction? The, immediate, t- the typical reaction is, wait a minute, what are you talking? I didn't even see the baklava. What are you talking about? I wasn't here. You should, when was that? How can you? Yeah. Vanity. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. It's all about self-centeredness, right? So these are the areas when, when you, in fact, bite your tongue and don't say anything and then focus on the other who's maybe hurting because that last bit of baklava escaped them and try to understand why. They're hurting so much, and be willing to pray for their hurt. Right? Yes. Maybe that's. And then you realize that, then you have pity for them. Now you're forgetting yourself. You're focusing on the others. Guess what? The face of Jesus shines through yours. You see the difference? Right? You see all these Muslims out there behaving in these erratic ways. So you stand here with your Christian self righteousness condemning them. What are you? You're one of those standing in front of Jesus and saying, crucify him. Because you can't see the face of Christ in them. Now, to many Christians, that's a scandal, what I'm saying to you right now. What? I want to see the face of Christ in a Muslim? Yeah, well, that's what the Jews said. How can he be the Savior? On the cross? Forget it. Do you understand? Or worse, seeing the face of Christ in the Democrat. Now, talk about it, right? See that kind of nonsense that we create for ourselves? Yeah, We create this nonsense for ourselves because we seek self-righteousness, self-justification. We want to explain our own ways because there, there are better ways. That's not what I said. I didn't say you shouldn't have discussion of political issues. No, I'm not saying you're not supposed to have discussions or you should not engage in politics. Obviously, you should engage in politics. This, the church calls us to engage in politics. We must be. 
I am talking about self-righteousness. When we look at the others and unilaterally condemn them and see them as the enemy instead of seeing them as the ones who must be saved. It's a slight distinction, but it's a very important one. It is not us against them. It is us for them. Let me put it to you this way. Let me put it to you this way. Think, think about all the people you know and pick, or you've heard of, and pick the person that you despise the most. Okay? That's the person that should be loved the most. Ah, that is very difficult indeed. And at the very least, we can go to Christ and say, I can't love the way you do. I, but, but, I, but I would love to, but I'd like to, but I can't. Now that is an honest position. He can take that. You see? You know why? Here's the problem. Because we, we look at this person, right? Osama bin Laden, Hitler, Stalin, whomever. And fundamentally, in a very fundamental sense, we view ourselves as better than they. See, that's the problem. When I view myself as better than my brother, you understand? I am insulting Christ. It's an insult to Christ. Because from his vantage point, when Christ looks at me and he loved me, I am no better than any of them. Let me put it to you this way. St. Therese, a little child Jesus. Don't take it from me, take it from her. St. Therese of Lisieux. This is how she says, she says it. Between man and God is a difference greater than between zero and infinity. Yeah? And the best of us, the best of us, has not left the rim of the zero. So we're all in that zero. But somehow, we think of ourselves as way better than we really are. See, that's what it teaches us. It teaches us the true love of Christ. Because once I start realizing, I should, oh, that leper, that person, that, hit, that, that hideous face, that whatever, I should love this person, then I, I realize a very fundamental truth. The distance between me and that person is way smaller than the distance between Christ and I. And yet he loves me in ways I can't even... He gave my life for me. Can I give my life to the, for the... Whoa. Then it leads us into a true understanding of the love of Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the way of St. Francis, by the way. That's the way of St. Therese, most of the saints. Yeah? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful to count your blessings. But that's a different... It's a different... It's a whole different attitude. What I'm talking about is a realization, a realization of our position vis-a-vis Christ. And we cannot understand it truly, hence beat our vanity, right? What is vanity? Vanity is masking of the truth. It's a deformation of the truth, distortion of the truth for myself own, my, my own interest. That's what vanity is. That what is vain is simply not true. So, when I do that, I discover the truth. The truth of who I am and the truth of Christ. The love of Christ for me. 
And that deepens my, that deepens my contrition and it deepens my gratitude towards Christ. Do you understand? Absolutely, yes. Gratitude is essential to combat vanity because it gives us a great sense of humility, right? Yeah. Yes. We have to defend ourselves, yeah. If there is an attack by Muslims that, who are intent on wiping us, we must defend ourselves. We should be vigilant and very careful, absolutely. But we should do it for purposes of charity, not for purposes of hatred. Because when I, when I defend myself... I am also doing a service to these people because I'm preventing them from committing greater evil. You understand? It's a win-win, really. Because if I don't defend myself and I allow them to come in and kill innocent lives, their own punishment in hell is compounded. It's going to be much, much worse than it is if I prevent them from doing this. So I must do it also in a spirit of charity, not in a spirit of hatred. That's key. Self-defense is a duty. It's a divine duty, but it is one of charity also. Do you understand what I'm saying? Ah. That is something that you must meditate. It's a very good question. How can you kill without hatred? That is a very good question. Yeah. There is actually a passage in Scripture where that exactly happens. With, With Gideon... God tells him, I don't want your whole entire army. I just want the people who are righteous. And he drops down the army. He sends it down to 300 soldiers who are righteous. And they take on an army of 5,000 and they win. Because love conquers all. See, when you ask me this question, how can I kill without hatred? This is fundamentally a Muslim principle. Hatred is your force to... It's not Christian. Precisely. And instead... And what happened to us is what happened to the Jews. They went to Egypt, and instead of converting Egypt, they were converted by the Egyptians. So, in so many Middle Eastern Christian families, they read the cup, they use the blue thingy, right? They have all these superstitions. They use the the bad languages that actually they've inherited from the Muslims. Conversion should have happened the other way. Not this way. Yeah. He who hates will not enter heaven. Period. Whatever the cause is. Because hatred, what is hatred? I mean, other than hate, you, you must hate sin. Absolutely. As in, you, can, you have to loathe it. You cannot stand it. You have to move away from it. Yes. But he who hates his brother. Hatred towards one means no forgiveness. And if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Make sense? Okay. Well, that, okay. So, yes, somebody is coming at you and you're, you know, on the spur of the moment, you're reacting. You're not held accountable, right? That, that's different. Self-defense is a duty. You must do it. And most of us are not ready for self-defense. We're not trained, right, in it. Okay, fine. We're not talking about those situations. But when somebody is, is stoking up hatred for the other, and I will tell you, most, more people hate, they hate more than they actually think they do. Right? When you unilaterally condemn a bunch of people, they're like this, like that. This is hatred. I don't care what you call it. This is not charity. That is a complete lack of charity. Because you are taking a group of people, each one of whom is created in the image of the Son of God, and take, turning them into an anonymous bunch. 
and allowing yourself to pass judgment on them, ignoring their own circumstances, their own lives, their own families, their own hurts, all the things that God knows about them. That's hatred. And if you notice, read the lives of the saints, read the writings, and you will see that they all refrain from doing any of that stuff. Yes. No, it's not, because the question is, isn't that confusing to have on one hand, thou that sh- shall not kill, on the other hand, kill this people. Thou shall not kill means thou shall not kill someone innocent. You can't, in other words, you will never, it's never acceptable to do a premeditated uh, murder. That's what he's talking about. But he's not saying that if somebody comes to your house and is intent on doing harm to your children that you stand on the side and just let him do it. You must stop him by applying the least amount of force necessary to stop him. And if that means taking his life away, then so be it. That is not the same as thou shalt not kill. You have to understand it in its context. Yeah? Because in that case, he said, thou shalt not kill. Well, then we cannot kill a chicken, can we? What about a fly? Right? Whoops, I stepped on the worm. I broke the commandment. You see what I'm saying? It just becomes absurd. It's the context that matters. Oh, I know. I know they believe that, but pray for them. Yes. Capital punishment is exactly what I just said. That's why the church never condemned capital punishment. In, in, in situations where you cannot control a murderer, a hardened murderer, you don't have the infrastructure to keep him locked, capital punishment is acceptable. You must prevent him from doing harm again. But in cases where you have a judicial system capable of containing them, then you must not resort to capital punishment in this case. Why? Because you want to be able to give this person every option of conversion. You understand? This has always been the teachings of the church. So when John Paul II said, in the United States or in most civilized countries, right, capital punishment is an option, people concluded, oh, the Catholic Church is against capital punishment. That's not the case at all. That's not what he was saying. They misunderstood what he said, but what else is new? All right? Okay, let's move on. So they became impatient, and what did they do? Notice what impatience does. This, the vice of impatience leads you to use your tongue in ways you regret. The vice of impatience leads you to use your tongues in ways you regret. Remember, every word you utter, every word you utter, God has a heavenly recorder. And He's recording every word you're speaking. And when you're going to stand before Him for your personal judgment, He's going to press rewind and play. And now you and Jesus are going to listen to every word you said. And you're going to render account for every one of these words standing in front of Him. All your life. Listen, if you confess, you mean you had what? Contrition. What does contrition imply? No more. So as long as you apply yourself to speak carefully, you're forgiven. But you go to confession and you go out and three minutes later you're wagging your tongue you're just compounding the problem. Because what? Jesus is going to play. He said, I gave you the gift of confession. What did you do with it? Let me show you. And all you're going to be able to say is, yes, Lord. You won't be able to say, but you know, she really got on my nerve. And she 
and he, and he knows. All you're going to be able to say is yes, Lord. That's all you're going to be. He's truth. Truth is speaking to you. There is no, nothing else you can say. Yeah? Every word you speak is recorded on a heavenly recorder. Nothing is lost. Do you understand that? So, tonight, do yourself a favor. Go home and make an examination of conscience on everything you said. And if your guardian angel shows you things you regret, things you've said that you regret, write them down. And if it is to people, you said this to people, call these people up, go see these people if you can, ask their forgiveness. And then go to confession. Because then when you stand in front of Jesus, it will say, you said this, but you repented. Well done. You understand? I don't know why I'm saying this, but I've said it. I have no idea how it's relating to the Bible study. But I said, yeah, impatience, right, that's why. Okay, cool. So what do they do? Here we go again. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now, usually it was against Moses and Aaron. So Aaron died. So, you know, while Aaron dead, so what do we do? We're just going to speak against God directly. They just told God, if you do this and that and the other, we're going to... They did it. And then they're going on and became impatient. Here's what's behind this. They gave that offering to God. But you know what? It's one thing to say, I'm going to do this, God. And it's a completely different thing to actually do it. So as you see all the gold and all the silver and all the goods passing in your hands and going to the tent, right? what might you feel then? Resentment. Resentment. Resentment leads to impatience. Yeah? So God, if you do this, so essentially, my reading into this is the expectation was, God would say, Sure, do it. They did it. And God would say, okay, you are so good, I'm giving it to you. God did it. And now, they have to go around Moab, Edom, further to the east. It's hotter. They just had to go to war, and they got nothing out of it. And now they're in the middle of the desert, and it's super hot. So what boils in them? Resentment leads to impatience. Impatience leads to saying things you didn't want to really say. And go, notice, God doesn't say, well, you know, I understand, poor you. I'm, I'm really making it hard for you. So, I, yeah, I'm just gonna. No, God sent serpents. Okay? Why do you think he's sending serpents? Because the tongue that wags poisons. Yeah? You poison the life of people if you do not speak with charity. To your wife, to your children, to your family, to your friends. Think twice before you blame somebody on anything. You're going to stand in front of Jesus and he's going to rewind the tape. And you're going to hear yourself saying, that nincompoop, he did this and then the other. And he's going to stop the tape and he's going to play the tape of the nincompoop. And you can see the perspective from the nincompoop's side. And you're going to go, ouch. And you're going to look at Jesus, but I didn't. Too late. If you didn't know, why did you pass judgment? So, okay, now I spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt? And the way, you know, again, again, Egypt, right? Still stuck on Egypt. 
to die in the wilderness, for there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Again, notice, what is now playing in them? Gluttony. When you become impatient, you trigger all the vices of the senses. And whichever is the one that matches your state, so if you're really tired, you haven't slept, or you're hungry, you haven't eaten, or you're thirsty, you didn't drink, right? or you didn't have your fill of pleasures, whatever the situation may be, you'll lash at somebody. They're having a temper tantrum. How did God answer that? Serpents. Do not use the name of the Lord in vain. So he sent serpents. So what happens? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Now let me read to you something here um, that's kind of really interesting. It's an account by yeah, T.E. Lawrence gives this account of remarkable experience in the Wadi Sirhan to the east of Jordan, so right where they're going to be. He says, quote, 19th century author, the plague of snakes which had been with us since our first entry into Sirhan today rose to memorable height and became a terror. This year the valley seemed creeping with horned vipers and puff adders cobras, and black snakes. By night, movement was dangerous, and at last, we found it necessary to walk with sticks, beating the bushes each side. So, yeah, there are cases where literally the the valley would be filled with snakes on all sides, and that's what's happening to them. So, the snakes bit them, and they died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Again, they need Moses' intercession. They know their prayers will not be answered. They know they have at least the intellectual honesty to recognize, okay, if we ask, we're not going to get it. Not like us. Well, yeah, all right, whatever. I use the name of the Lord in vain. I'm just going to go to confession. You know, this kind of pompous attitude. Moses, as a prophet, is an intercessor. Remember, the prophetic function is also one of intercession. So, Moses probably is thinking, why did I say yes? Why did I say yes? I was so happy with my sheep up on the mountain. Why did I say I'm just imagining. I mean, you got to have devotion to Moses. I mean, what he has to put up with. Right? He's really a role model for us in understanding our call to do God's will. God doesn't make it easy on him. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit any man, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And the people of Israel set out and encamped in Oboth. Now notice, God did not take the serpents away. He left the serpents in their midst. And told Moses to make a bronze serpent. Why bronze? What is bronze symbol of? Judgment. Bronze is always judgment. Hmm? When they say the heavens were like bronze, there's no rain. It's super hot. So it's always a sign of judgment. But also bronze tells you this is not a serpent of the same nature. It's a different nature. Yeah? And when you're bitten... Those who are bitten, then therefore those who are sick now, can look at the serpent, just looking at him, 
and they're healed. And this is what Jesus told Nicodemus. Amen, amen, I say to you, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. Whomever will look at him will live. Now, look at him doesn't mean you glance. Oh, yeah, here he is on the cross. Okay, I'm done. No. Look, gaze with love. Know who he is and our relationship with him. All that is involved into the look at him. Notice, though, only those who were bitten could be healed. And Jesus told them so many times, I haven't come for those who are healthy. I've come for those who are sick. Meaning what? All of you are sick. All of you are sinners. But if you think of yourself healthy, you'll stay in your sin. If you have the vanity of thinking that you're ready to be canonized, you stay with your sin. But if you know that you've bitten by the serpent, the devil, and you look at me, I will heal you. All right. Now, I'm going to take the two other episodes together and just look at it this way. Um, in both the case of Sihon and the case of Og, Israel is, is successful in the war. And that's precisely because um, they are in the vicinity of the promised land, the land that is promised to Israel. It's not on account of the goodness of the people that God grants them victory. It's on account of His promise and on account of the evil that the people did. So when a ban happens, like they slew them by the, by the sword, or they destroyed their cities, it means everybody dies. Men, women, children, everybody's killed. Nobody survives. How can we explain that? How can we explain that God will allow a ban like this to happen? Okay? This is a difficulty that haunts many, many Christians. And I will uh, simply quote a couple of passages that I thought are sort of important. First of all, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, verse 5, it is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land. It's not because you're good that I'm giving you the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the wickedness of these nations. When a nation becomes wicked, it means it is a fertile soil to produce souls for hell. There is no redemption. Hence, all those born into this Fertile soil are not going to heaven. The door is closed. So God shuts it down. You understand? It is justice, but it's also mercy. Because His wrath would be to allow it to continue. Thereby dragging more souls into hell. Look at it this way. If you have now a society that passes a law that says, Every child, boy and girl, from age 7 onward will watch two hours of pornography every day. Suppose we pass a law like this one. What do you think the practical result is going to be? What do you think is going to happen to these children? Yes. But this I'm saying, everybody. It's a unilateral law. If you live in this state, your kids will watch two hours of pornography every day. You understand what I'm saying? When you have a society like this, completely corrupt, within and without... What is merciful? To let them continue to do that or put a stop to it? Okay. If they do it for generations, for a couple of generations, 
right? It becomes habitual. You know how we have habitual vice or habitual virtue? Virtue is a habit, is a habit leading to the good in an individual. You also have vices and virtues in societies. When these things become habitual in a society to such a degree, it is merciful on God's part to put an end to it. You understand? Okay. Now, I'm going to read to you one thing as we close the study. I'm going to read to you from an apparition of Our Lady at La Salette. Now, in every apparition, this is an approved apparition of Our Lady. In every one apparition, you will not find new theological teaching. You will not find new truths. Our Lady is not here to reveal truths to us. But, at the same time, so, fundamentally, it's called the private revelation, and you are at liberty to ignore it. It's not necessary for salvation. Let's put it this way. However, if in your house, your mom sits you down and tells you a few good things, things that are good for you, even though there are not the, she's not changing the principles of the family. She's not changing what uh, the direction that uh, the, the, your father set for your family. She's telling you certain things. You do well to heed them. Especially if it is the Queen of Heaven talking. Right, now, I want you to listen carefully to what she's saying. She's talking to the children in La Salette. If my people... Who is the people of Our Lady, by the way? My people. The Catholics. The Catholics. Those are her people. If my people do not obey, I shall be compelled to lose my son's arm. It is so heavy, I can no longer restrain it. How long have I suffered for you? If my son is not to abandon you, I am obliged to entreat him without ceasing. I am obliged to entreat him without ceasing. But you take no heed of that. How many of us are really aware of what Mary is doing for us? How many of us know how much we owe her? You take no heed of that. I mean, just listen. It's a mother talking. It's your mother sitting you at home and telling you how much she sacrificed for you. Because you're not aware. You take no heed of that. No matter how well you pray in the future... No matter how well you act, no matter how well you pray, no matter how well you act, you will never be able to make up to me what I have endured on your behalf. And How many of us say thank you to Mary? I have made it a habit in my family, and we've been doing this for 18 years. After every Mass, we go kneel before her and we pray to say thank you. And I'm not forgetting you. I have given you six days to work. The seventh I have reserved for myself. Saturday. Uh, Sunday, I'm sorry. Sunday. Yet no one will give it to me. That is what causes the weight of my son's arm to be so crushing. What is causing the weight of Jesus' arm to be so crushing? They're not going to Mass. They're not saying the rosary. It isn't the state of the world. It isn't what the world is doing out there. It is Catholics who are not praying. That's what's causing the arm of Jesus to be so crushing. 
The cart drivers, she's talking about the people in their village, where they are. The cart drivers cannot swear without bringing in my son's name. Those are supposed to be Catholics. These are two things which make my son's arm so heavy. Using the name of the Lord in vain and not praying, not going to Mass. The lady then went on to speak about the coming punishments for these sins of Sabbath breaking and blasphemy, including crop blights and famine. At one point, switching from French, which the children did not understand perfectly, to the local patois, which is the local uh, slang or dialect, if you will, of their area. Then she spoke to Maximin alone, the boy, imparting a secret to him, which Melanie could not hear, before turning to her to give her a secret that Maximin likewise could not hear. Presently, she again spoke to both, saying that if the people were to be converted, then the fields would produce self-sown potatoes and the stones become wheat. Do you see how nature is related to what Catholics do? The stones become wheat. And we're thinking, wow, there's too many of us. This is happening. We don't have enough crops. We can't do this. This is atheism. The stones become... He fed 5,000 with five loaves. What is that a sign of? She then asked a significant question. Do you say your prayers well, my children? Do you say your prayers well, my children? They replied that they hardly prayed. And she told them they should say at least their morning and night prayers before continuing. Only a few rather old women go to Mass in the summer. Everyone else works every Sunday all summer long. And in the winter, when they don't know what else to do, they go to Mass only to scoff at religion. You know, you get into the church, and then you see things you don't like. You go out, you criticize the priest, you criticize the church, you criticize this. Okay? During Lent, they go to the butcher shops like dogs. This is Our Lady speaking. La Salette, in the 19th century. You can check it out. on. Yeah. They go to the butcher shops like dogs. What is she complaining about? She's not complaining about morality. She's not complaining about, you know, what the world is doing. She's complaining about the liturgy. We don't live the liturgy. That's what's so important, and we're not doing it. She then asked the children if they had ever seen spoiled wheat. And when both replied that they had not, the lady reminded Maximin that he had once seen it, went on a visit to a nearby hamlet with his father. He then remembered that what she had said was true. Finally, the lady spoke to them in French. Well, my children, you will make this known to all my people. The, 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 what I just read to you. Before moving forward between them, she went on a few yards and then re-emphasized her message to them without turning around. Now, my children, be sure to make this known to all my people. So, Next time around, when these questions come to mind, well, how come God could allow these people to be destroyed? Think of this. Think of this. How many say their prayer morning and evening without fail? How many actually do take fasting seriously and trust in God's ability to sustain them through the fast? How many really are working on developing a love for the Mass and for the Church? How many take their faith seriously 
to make it the rule of conduct in our lives. That's what consoles Jesus. You want to you say to Jesus and Mary you love them? You do that. You understand? That's key to understand why God would allow those bans to happen. Because of the wickedness of people, he was giving the land to the, the, the Israelites on account of what? On account of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And for us, it is also very encouraging because God will forbear with us and be patient with us on account of St. Therese, St. Francis, St. Anthony, right? Our Lady. On account of them, He will give us what is needed for us to be saved. Not because, of, because we deserve it, but because of them. Yeah? All right. So let's finish with a word of prayer. All right. Questions? Yes. So the question was, um, based on the movie The Mission, uh, one of the priests refused to take up their arm and defend himself and walk with the cross. Right? If that's the case, and that's, that's the highway, how can we then say that um, wars are uh, right? Well, uh, the answer is uh, actually very simple. There is good and there is best. The best way in that particular case is what this priest did because he was inspired by God to do so. Remember, we are not to be martyrs on our own. God calls us to martyrdom. It's a special gift to be a martyr. And when he gives you that gift, he then is going, he's saying to you, I am going to give you the crown of martyrdom in heaven because you're standing as my witness. So in that case, this is what this priest was called to do and he did his duty. But not everybody's called to martyrdom. Therefore, most of us are called to defend ourselves and our country when we are attacked. This is our duty and God expects us to perform our duty. Simple as that. No, no, the Holy Spirit does not have to tell the leader, go ahead and do war. Common sense does. If we are attacked, think of it this way, very, very simple. Uh, somebody is going to attack you in your house and is going after your children. Do you stand on the side waiting for the Holy Spirit to tell you to do something? But my point to you again, you and I are not to decide we're martyrs. In fact, that's a sin presumption. Martyrdom is a special calling. God will let you know you're going to be a martyr for me. He will give you the strength to withstand this and to do what he wants. That's a special calling. No, no, no. Okay, I, I know what you're referring to. That was Peter, actually. Yeah, who took the sword. That does not mean Jesus is saying no wars. In that specific instance, Peter is relying on a human mode because he wants a human empire. He's looking at Jesus as a human king who's going to set up his throne in, in Jerusalem and then act like Superman. And Jesus is telling Peter, you're still not getting it. Without the cross and the resurrection, there is no salvation. His, world, his ways were worldly. Jesus was objecting mostly to the fact that Peter was still attached to worldly ways. But that does not mean that Jesus is saying all wars are bad. In fact... Uh, I would recommend those of you who are of that, um, who has that inclination, who think this way, please study history. 
read about the Battle of Lepanto. Okay? L-E-P-A-N-T-O. Read about the Battle of Lepanto. Now, that battle determined the history of Europe. The Battle of Lepanto. Read about the Battle of Constantinople. When Constantinople was surrounded by Muslims, and they were outnumbered 1 to 5 or 1 to 10. And that's when they came up with this amazing prayer called the Akatist Hymn. They were standing all night long, and it's one of the most beautiful hymns written to Our Lady, extolling her virtues. It has the same indulgences as the rosary. It's called the Akatist Hymn, because standing. Akatist, A-K-H-A, I would say T-I-S-T-E, or T-Y-S-T-E, I don't remember. One or the other, Y or I. It's standing in Greek, right? And they won that battle. The Battle of Lepanto, likewise, they were surrounded by the Turks, and they were the, the Tur- Turkish Navy, the Armada, again, one to five. And they prayed all night to St. Michael the Archangel, and they won. It was a miracle. Read in Scripture the battles that the Lord commands. You have to change that outlook. It's a wrong outlook on life to think that God is against all battles. That's not true. Well, hold on. No, no. Uh, you're saying in the Old Testament he used to punish people with other people. For instance, punish Israel with the Assyrians, right? Guess what? He still do it today. He still does it today. That's why the Muslims are around. God will keep Islam around as the scourge of Christianity because we need it. Absolutely. Not, nothing's changed. The same way that he used in the Old Testament is used in the New. There's no difference. Well, okay, uh, what about uh, Stalin, who murdered 20 million Catholics in Ukraine? No, there's no difference. It's the same thing. War is used by God as, in many cases, as a tool for punishment. He does it repetitively because he has to clean the slate because we messed it up too badly. And so he has to come in and clean it up. So, war is used as a punishment. And Our Lady says it herself in Fatima. The, 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 uh, the, the Lord will punish the world with another war. She was talking about the Second World War. You know, it's not clear. It's not clear to me that when there is a war, that necessarily everybody's going to hell. In fact, in many cases, during a war, people find salvation. I don't think we should necessarily assume that when a war happens, then that means God is sending everybody to hell. As I said, oftentimes there's a merciful side to war, because during the battle, people find salvation. So I, I wouldn't necessarily assume it assume this way. In fact, in the war of Iraq, there's this woman who lives in the East Coast. And she heard there's some s- soldiers who wanted scapulars. So she sent them scapulars. And then, then the priest there said, I need more. And she sent more. And eventually it became a full-time occupation. All she does is send scapulars to Iraq. And if these soldiers were here, probably none of them would even bother with a scapular. So it's not, we shouldn't conclude that because there is a war and somebody dies in war, that necessarily this person is going to hell. Those are two separate things. All right? Yes. Yes. You're honest, indeed. The question is, if there's somebody you don't like, can you pray to Jesus and ask Jesus to make that person behave like Jesus so we can love him? You know, that's very original, I have to say. Uh, You can try that prayer. At least it's an honest prayer. And he always, our Lord always appreciates honesty. It's a very honest prayer. Um, 
But see, if you, there's one thing we learn from the book of Exodus and Numbers when we watch Moses, is that oftentimes, in all the book, God does not change. Moses does. A prayer that doesn't change you is not fruitful, is it? If you pray to God, and as the result of this prayer, you still have the same vices and the same virtues, and there's no growth in glory, you're not benefiting from the prayer. Something is wrong. So if you pray to God and say, make this person lovable so I can love this person, you're basically saying, I only want to love what is lovable. That which is not lovable, I don't want to love. And that's precisely what God wants to break in us. Because unless we love that which is not lovable, we have no idea and no understanding of His love for us. Because we're thinking we're lovable. When in fact, we're not. Do you understand? No, no, we're not talking about loving evil. I'm talking about loving a person. You hate the sin, St. Augustine, hate the sin, love the sinner. Now, you cannot say that. You cannot say that. None of us can say that. Again, you and I cannot say that. You're rendering judgment over something you don't know. I've heard that oftentimes when people say, the Muslim are this, the Muslim are that. Let me tell you, again, it's ignorance of history. With all the bad things the Muslim did, and they did a lot of bad things, all the bad things the Muslim did pale in comparison to what the Christians did. The number of people killed by the Muslims, the number of Jews persecuted by the Muslims, the number of pogroms, the number of wars, the number of colonialism, the slavery perpetuated by so-called Christian countries is far worse than anything the Muslims did put together, including terrorist attack today. We have blinders. Study history. History is not on the side of Christian nations. Not by any stretch of the imagination. So again, I'm not saying they're saints. Far from it. Do they, did they, do they commit atrocities? Absolutely they do. Are they living in blindness? Absolutely they do. Is, religion, is their religion inspired by God? Absolutely not. Right? Be very clear. But to think that they, collectively, with everything they did, are more evil than us? No. I will remind all of you that it isn't Muslims who threw two atomic bombs on two cities, destroying hundreds of thousands of civilians. And finding a way to justify that. Again, it's blinders on our side to think somehow they're way worse than we are. We are, we did our, cha- our share. In Canada, when they wanted to get rid of the Indians, the Canadian government during wintertime gave them um, um, blankets made of wool and in which they have actually uh, put tuberculosis. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, no. We have nothing <laughs> to stand on as countries when it comes to comparing ourselves to Muslims. The only thing that we have is the saints. It's the Catholic Church. It's the Mass. It's the truth. That's what we have. And this is for us to share with them, not to use as means of condemnation. You understand? Yeah. Yes. 
Okay. Fadi, I'll put it to you this way. No, no, I'll put it to you this way. This is very important. What you're saying is, this is the crux of the matter. This is it. Fadi's point. Many of us come from the Middle East, and many of us have suffered because of what the Muslims did. So therefore, the notion that we should love them is very, very hard to accept. Right? Okay. Now, some of you don't, don't come from the Middle East, have very little interaction with, with Muslims, and don't know what that means. Right? So I remember when I was little, in my own village, my dad took me to the center of the village where you had, um, what do you would call this, uh, the uh, equivalent of a, 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 an official building where the mayor is. That's it. The what? City hall. Yeah, equivalent to the city hall, right? And it was an old building, and there was a balcony. And he said to me, you see that patch up there? And yeah, you could see there was sort of a, sort of a uh, rusted patch on that building. Like, it's sort of a, a semi... Um, um, a circular uh, arc. I said, yeah. He said, that's the blood of your ancestors when they were killed here. All right? We're talking 1848. Not that long ago. And it's by people living in the surrounding villages. And when you see that, right, it leaves a lasting impression on you, believe me. It does. So, you're right. But you see, that is the scandal of the cross. My God, my God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They were the one persecuting him. They were the one who wanted him dead. They were the one who gave them to the Roman, who watched him being scourged and laughed at him. They were the one laughing at him, watching him suffer on the cross. My God, my God, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Yeah. That is the calling of Christ. So, can we do that? No. No, honestly, we cannot love this way. On our own, there is no way we are, we're going to love this way. We can't. It is only when we give ourselves to Jesus that He transforms us into Himself and allow us to love the way He does. Think of his mother. She was right there. They're mocking her, his, her son. They're making fun of him. They're the one punning. Not a word of complaint. There was anybody who could complain. Do you understand that if Our Lady said, right there on the spot, if she looked at her son and she said, Son, send them all to hell. They'd all be in hell. He would refuse her nothing. It wasn't because she was powerless that she didn't speak. Mary's words move mountains. Whatever she says is. That's the power she had right then. Nothing. My point to you is that if you can't let go of that hatred towards Muslims you are unable to enter into the mystery of the love of Christ. It's blocking you. And the devil knows that, and he strokes that. He's striking this in your ear all the time. He wants you to continue to keep this animosity towards Islam because he knows that as long as you're doing this, you will not be conformed into the image of the Savior. He's stealing your graces and your glory away from you under your noses. Pray to be freed from all of this. And pray to St. Francis. He watched the leper and he hugged him. 
and he comes from a very wealthy, well-to-do family. Not easy to hug a leper. He did it. Because he understood the love of Christ. Pray to him to help you. This is a spiritual battle. You have to overcome all of this. You understand? Yes. You see, it's a purification of intentions that has to happen in the heart. It's purifying our own intentions. Uh, to accept that when a wrongdoing is done to us, that we ought to rejoice because we are joined to the suffering of Christ. I'm not making those words, the Beatitudes, right? Rejoice when somebody, right? Rejoice. So you cannot rejoice, I cannot rejoice, if there is hatred in my heart. I'm blocking the, beat, beat, the Beatitudes from taking root and growing into spiritual fruitfulness. There's no way I'm going to be able to rejoice if I'm hating somebody. Muslims, my mother-in-law, you name it. doesn't matter. It's not going to work. It's, it's a spiritual purity. It's blessed are pure in heart, right? Yeah, well, that's what it is. Blessed are the meek. That's what you cannot be meek, pure in heart, when you carry all that hatred. It's not going to happen. So you're doing yourself a disservice and you're falling into the devil's prey. Hatred is from the devil, not from God. Hatred of someone else. All the saints will tell you, all the saints will tell you, it is far better that this whole universe disappears. All the planets and all the stars and all the, everything in this whole universe goes away than for one soul to fall into hell. You, you also know that wishing that someone goes to hell, that's a moral sin. If you wish that someone goes to hell, that's a moral sin. Do you understand that? And the devil wants you. He strokes you. He wants to get that hatred growing in you so that you can commit that sin. Do you understand? So, so let go of all of this. Ask Jesus. To, your guardian angel will help you to send the truth in your heart. And he will purify all this from you. And the other thing is, Oftentimes, when we hate someone, it's because we have also anxiety. We do not see that other person, what they're doing, as a gift. We cannot see them as a gift because we do not believe that God has a plan for us. And these people are part of the plan. And then when we're going to be in heaven, we're going to be spending our first 10,000 years thanking God that these people we thought we should hate were there. Because they were part of our salvation. You understand? It's a lack of trust in God and being able to really surrender our lives to Him. But when we do these things, we start to see everything as a gift. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I don't... Uh, that's a slippery slope. I really don't have much... I'll, I'll be very honest. There's very little for me to learn from any other group out there. Why? Because whatever they have, we have and more. Right. So the communion of the saints, reading the lives of the saints, will teach me far more than any human organization will ever do. So I understand what you're saying, though. By observing, for instance, the way the Muslims are devoted to their prayer. Right? No matter where they are, they put the thing and they pray. Right? That is, that absolutely, it convicts me. Yes, I agree with you. Seeing how they fast. Right? I have a colleague, when Ramadan comes... From sun, sun, sunshine to sunset, he doesn't eat or drink. We have meetings, we have food, he touches nothing the whole day. 
Well, that convinced me. He said, okay, wait a minute. If he can do it, I should be able to fast. I have no excuse. So yes, again, this is my point. God puts these people on my road as a gift. Signpost saying, I'm talking to you. Are you listening? You see? If in my mind there's hatred, I'm saying to God, right, you don't love me. You're putting these people on my way. I, I don't want them. Take them away. You, you don't learn. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay, again, that's nothing to do but the theological truth. Right? I'm not affirming equality between religions. Far from it. I think I've been very explicit. I was very explicit what I think of Islam. I've told you, right, very explicitly. No, that's nothing to do with this. We have to defend the truth because the truth is Jesus Christ. We're called to give an apology, uh, apology meaning a defense of the faith. But that's a moral, that's a, uh, um, moral and uh, le, um, theological relativism. That's a heresy. To say, well, you know, your, your faith and your truth are good for you, and your, my faith and my truth is good for me, and, you know, live and let live. That's what it, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I can see clearly that they're wrong. They're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. Right? But it doesn't lead me to hate them. Yes. It depends. The question is, if I say, oh my God, is that a sin? Oh my gosh, same thing. Yes, absolutely. If you're saying it, um, not meaning to either call on God's help or praise Him, it's a sin. You're using His name in vain. If you say, a child is falling, and you, oh my God, and you really mean it as, help me, even if you don't say it, right? That's a prayer. If you, if you see a beautiful scenery, you're just standing somewhere, and there's this beautiful, just amazing, and you go, oh my God, and you're praising Him, that's wonderful. But if it is, oh yeah, I went to the store, and oh my God, there was this thing, and then, yeah, you just committed a sin. And it's a pretty bad one too, Yeah. Remember these Israelites? Probably they thought minutes after the serpent showed up. I didn't really... The tongue, when it wags. Yeah. Jesus was very clear. Let your yes be yes. Your no be no. Everything else is from the devil. That's Jesus speaking. Okay? Yes. Ah, how do I convert them? Not convince them. No, 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 no. No, no. You do want to convert them. Look, look. Saint, heed the words of Saint Francis. Saint Francis told his brothers preach always and when necessary use words. First is by your life. No, no, no. No, no. Your, not behavior. Your life. The difference. You don't have to behave. You have to be. Okay. I'm saying how you are. How you exist. You're still focused on the do. Forget that. Look. Mother Teresa was on a show with a man named Jacques Monod, who was a leading physician in Fran- uh, physicist in France. And it was uh, talking. He was an atheist. And he talked most of the time. He talked and talked and talked and talked. Very erudite, very knowledgeable. Knows a lot. Mother was silent. Just silent. And in the end, the anchor man turned around and said, Mother, aren't you going to say anything? 
He's expecting, you know. Mother didn't address any of the points that this man said. All she said, I believe in love. Now, I'm saying it. It comes the way it comes. When she said it, it comes with power. Because her life is about love. That man, apparently, after the show said, get away from me. I don't want to see her. That's all she said. Because of who she is, not what she does. If you focus on your spiritual life, if you focus on your time of prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, if you focus on loving Jesus, it will come out of you without you doing anything. And that will attract the ones whom the Father calls. And you don't worry about the rest. You understand? Everything else lines up. It goes always back to the same point. How are you living the liturgy? How are you living God in the Mass? How are you loving the church? Are you spending time in prayer? Is God really the one you're seeking? If you are, then that is going to come out of you like the smell of a really good bread. And they're going to go, that smells good. What is that? And said, Hardini. And, and then they will want to come to you. That's it. And then when, when there is a point in time where you have to say something, you're able to say it. But because it comes out of love and charity, it's well received. It's not with resentment, I'm going to prove my point and you're wrong. And all is God asking you to do is to love Him. He will do the rest. Yes, to the one who the Father is calling. I'm, I'm quoting our Lord. Right? Not everybody, no. Right? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. Now listen, listen. Mother Teresa, again. God is not asking you to be successful. God is asking you to be faithful. Mother Teresa. All right? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.